decided to grab a glass of water while I'm up here. Trust me, it just has water in it. <sighs> well, thank you so much for having me today. I'm so um, privileged and honored, and uh, as I was sharing with a few people right before um, when I first came in, uh, Dorothy and um, some of the people who are behind the scenes preparing this conference we're talking about chips and giving birthday chips, and I suddenly remembered that November is my birthday month, and this is 15 years for me. <laughs> and isn't that funny how we can just forget stuff like that or put it aside or whatever? And for so many years, I wasn't able to celebrate my birthday. I wasn't able. I didn't celebrate my birthday because it always fell, you know, towards the end of the month, which was always Thanksgiving, and there was always, you know, people weren't in town, and my friends wouldn't be around, and it wasn't good if there, your friends couldn't be with you on your birthday, and all the excuses, and then, it's, you know, pulling myself away from family stuff, you know, it was really hard, so it just became something I didn't really recognize, but a few times in my lifetime, so this is a special honor for me, and a very special opportunity for me, and I know my higher powers behind the scenes arranging that. So thank you so much for being here with me today and celebrating, you know, helping to celebrate my 15th with me. I just consider you friends already just from that experience. Well, um, I'm just going to tell you, too, that um, in my experience of, of being in 12-step programs, principally I was, I'm, I'm involved with um, adult children of alcoholics because that's really where my um, all my issues are they really are in, in how I was raised and so my story really begins with um, being raised in a Catholic family um, and for those of you raised Catholic you will know that the, that's not just a religion it's like a culture it's a, it is more my background it, I mean I am far more Catholic than I am Czechoslovakian and German okay I mean I don't even you know like I know about kolaches and that's it but ask me anything about the Catholic Church, and I know about it. I know its history, and I know the years. I was raised in Catholic, going up through schools and all of that. And so it really gave me my worldview. And it reinforced a lot of the alcoholic dysfunction in my family as well. I don't know exactly why that is. I don't know. Maybe it was just that, that I heard it that way growing up. But for me, that's, um, that's a lot of what I experienced. And I really was a very avid Catholic. I really did everything I was supposed to do and went to church every Sunday and did the whole thing. And, um, and coming up in the Catholic Church um, and coming up in my family, I was the oldest of five children. And we were all very close together in age. So we were sort of like a unit of kids, you know. I mean, I'm the oldest and my youngest brother's seven years younger. So the other three fit in between. So we're very Catholic, as you can tell. And so um, in coming up in, in that family, my father was the alcoholic, rageaholic, and my mother the, um, you know, the hyperventilating, hyper-controlling, hyper, you know, hyperphobic, you know, hy hypochondriac, you know, hypervigilant, you know, <laughs> they're a hyper I left out, um, and still is to some effect, to some, to some degree, and, um, and, I, and I love her dearly. My father passed from cancer in um, 1976. And so um, he basically, as I understand now, the disease of alcoholism realized that I never knew him a day sober. I don't believe he was ever 
sober long enough to really be able to claim sobriety, um, from what I understood. I, of course, grew up oblivious to that. You know, I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but I was oblivious. I thought everybody just at will could drink two six-packs of beer every night, and that was just part of the deal, you know. When my mom would go to get groceries or go stop off at the ice house, she'd get cigarettes, beer, milk, and cereal for in the morning. I mean, that's kind of just, that was the run, you know. So I just grew up with that and, um, and thought that was the way life was. And it really wasn't until um, I got older and into my um, 20s that um, as I was dating, that my relationships were really very, you know, traumatic and, and of short duration for the most part. You know, it was like a six-week, eight-week deal, you know. It was like it was either I left them or they left me and, you know, footsteps across my face, you know, out the door and the whole bit. And, you know, just all this drama and stuff. So I wrote poetry about, you know, being lost and left and abandoned and just in my angst and all of that. And really didn't know that that was just dysfunctional. I thought it, thought it was love, you know. I thought that's what it looked like. And so um, I was really taken by surprise that in my late 20s, I was um, about 28 or 29, when I met my husband, I was a medical technologist working in hospital in the medical center. And... Um, you know, did a good job there and really enjoyed my work and um, met um, a gentleman who was um, in the nursing, uh, head of the nursing in the emergency room. And it was my idea to get these two departments together on my evening shift because I was in charge of the whole evening shift, had just come on, and I didn't have any friends. You know, I was still single and I was looking for really you know, just friends. I really wasn't looking for, you know, a relationship to last forever. That was nice, but I really wanted just people to hang out with. Because when you work the evening shift, you're sort of in this no man's land, you know. It's great because you can sleep late, which I need to do. And you could stay up late, which is also easy for me to do. But you were really out of sync with anybody else in normal hours. And the third shift people, well... <laughs> They're all crazy anyway, so you didn't want to hang out with them either. So, so it was really kind of a weird place to be hanging out. So um, I really wanted to get people that I could relate to, and so I just made the decision that I would expand outside of my department and kind of meet some other people. And one of the things I realized was that our two departments weren't working well together, so I went and asked permission to have them come to our, on their break, come and see our laboratory and see where we did all of our tests so that they would know us and wouldn't accuse us of terrible things and, and things that we weren't doing right and that we would go to them so that they could um, meet us and, you know, be friends. So it's real hard to yell at somebody on the phone if you know their face, you know. It's hard to, when you know their name, it's hard to yell. You know, you at least tend to be a little bit more courteous and so we were really thinking that would work. And so in the process, I met um, the person that, was, that I ended up marrying, but I didn't know that at the time. And he was in charge of that shift. And so as he and I developed a, a friendship, it was very guarded because I didn't want to, um, well, I mean, I didn't want to spoil a good work relationship. <laughs> my, my personal life hadn't been all that hot, so I certainly didn't want to have a six-to-week fling with him and then we had to work together. I mean, that would really, you know, that'd be crummy. So I was really pushing him off kind of at a distance. And then finally he asked me out, and I agreed, and we went out on one official date. And um, after that, we just sort of fell in together. You know what I mean? We just, we never really, we just didn't, we didn't have any more official dates after that. It was just sort of like, well, I'll see you tonight. Well, then we'll go over there, and then we'll come over here. And then 
Well, as it turned out, about three weeks later, he invited me to go to, um, with him to Corpus Christi for the weekend. So I thought, well, this guy, he's already been asking me to marry him, you know. So I thought, well, um, I don't know about this. I don't know about this relationship. So I'll just, um, I'll tell you what, I'll just go ahead and go with him for the weekend, and it'll make or break it. You know, either we'll get along great, and we'll know that it'll be over, and the pressure will be off, you know. That was sort of like a flip of the coin for me. How in touch I was with my heart, you know. That's just where I was. I didn't feel anything from the throat down, you know. And some of you feel that way sometimes, too. But that was kind of how I made decisions in those days. So um, we did go out, and we had a wonderful time. And when we got back, um, I told him, I said, you know, I could see being married to you for, the re- for at least 50 years, you know, 50 and we could, re- we could figure it out at the end of 50 years and just kind of re-affiliate. So it was kind of one of those deals where I didn't really know anything. I mean, it's like my brain then needed like all the reasons, you know. It was like I had to put it down. Why do I want to marry this guy? And it was just, I didn't have a clue. But my, my left brain needed to know what my right brain was really okay with. So it's just, I share that with you to kind of get a sense of just how dysfunctional and and how the alcoholism and the disease really does separate us so much our heads from our hearts and our ability to really trust our intuition because that's not valued when you're in a survival mode growing up and so none of those things of course I was conscious of I was just aware that it felt like the right thing but I needed some justification you know well it was shortly after I shared with him that I would be willing to marry him that he told me that, oh, by the way, he was taking Demerol out of the box in the ER where he was working and that he'd been using it for about a year. But now that he met me, he wouldn't be lonely anymore, so he wouldn't need it anymore. And I said, oh, okay, that's how it works. You know, (laughs) I didn't know. So I just decided that, you know, it was like one of those automatic impulses that, that codependents just automatically know that if they say they're going to quit and you believe in them and the way that you show your faith is you never ask them about it again and so that's what I did and so I just continued to go along not even looking at his arms to see if he could possibly be using anymore because he said he was going to quit and because I believed in him that was going to be the, you know that was going to be the saving grace and I just never thought about it again. I never really gave it any more thought it's just, it just appalls me but that's exactly what happened so by Thanksgiving, we were engaged and announced it to the family. By um, December, I was going to Virginia to his hometown to meet his family and introduce myself as his, you know, hi, I'm Karen, um, I'm going to be your daughter-in-law. You know, I hope that's okay with you. It was just very strange. And then coming home in January, he went back to the hospital. Two weeks later, in the mid- middle of January, he was fired from the hospital for taking drugs from the lockbox. His Drug addiction, of course, they continued, and he found himself incapable of stopping. Um, that we still had plans to be married in May, so he moved in with me because he was without a job at the time. So we were living together towards our. Um, does this sound familiar to somebody? Anybody? <laughs> oh yes, it gets better. Trust me. And then we. Um, this is the setup for it getting better. And so and so we're going through um, our experience at, at the same hospital now. I'm still working at the same hospital. He's been fired, and I've, I'm the one who put the two departments in communication with each other. But luckily, if you have any sense of how departments work, they don't stay in touch with each other. 
so they didn't really know. The one department was in terrible grief over the fact they had to fire one of their star people because he was using drugs. And, of course, they're all codependent around him because they should have known, they should have seen, they should have figured it out. And so I'm, on the other hand, keeping up this other front of saying, oh, yes, he's moved on to other things now, and he's going to be working in blah, 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 whatever I, whatever I was doing. Wherever he was, he was working in different capacities as a nurse. Well, throughout the summer... We got married in May, and throughout the summer, he continued going from one job to another. I'm thinking the whole time that he's at least he's out of the emergency room where all that stress and trauma is that was causing him to use those drugs, right? And so, I mean, now he's only drinking and using pot every day. That's okay. <laughs> but I'll show him I won't get pregnant as long as he's using the illegal stuff. He can drink all he wants, but he cannot use marijuana anymore. That's where I made my stand. And so um, I'm getting my education, as you can see, very incrementally along this process. Well, then in August um, came the day where he was in still another emergency room and had once again gotten access to the drugs and was sitting in the bathroom about to shoot up 2,000 milligrams of Demerol, which is twice his dose at that time, which would likely have killed him. And as he sat and contemplated his powerlessness over this disease, and this compunction that he had, this compulsion to use, he thought about me, he says, and he realized that he really couldn't do that. And so he did what any good addict would do. He shot up half of it then and the other half later and did turn himself in the next day. And his license was taken away from him, and he was put into a treatment program, which for the first time really involved me. He'd been into some EAP assistance programs before, but it was sort of like one-on-one counseling, and I only got like half of the stuff filtered through his consciousness of what was really going on. Of course, I wanted to help him get sober, of course, right? Because I'm the straight-A student. I'm the one that does it right. I'm the one that looks good. I'm I'm the, the hero child in my family. I wanted to help make all this work. Well, as we got into treatment there, it was a whole other world for me. Because what happened is we got into treatment after Labor Day. This is like four months after we were married. So we got into treatment as a family unit. And I you know, wore this little button called uh, codependency. This was in 1985, I guess. And um, codependency was a really new thing. It certainly was new to me. And chemical dependency, that was easy because he used chemicals. I got that. But the codependency part I didn't understand. And it was exacerbated by the fact they would continuously ask me how I felt about things. Well, it was irrelevant, wasn't it? I mean, I I was sitting there going, so I would meet these new therapists, and they would say, well, and so Karen, how do you feel? And I would say, well, you see, he's the chemical dependent, I'm the codependent. Why don't you ask him how he feels? (laughs) And I was very serious. I was really serious. It's so pathetic. I really thought that they just didn't understand that I wasn't the one with the problem. He was. And so we were all here to help him. I thought that was clear. And it didn't, I didn't know how to handle the question. And then I didn't know what the right answer was. And I needed to know what the right answer was, right? Because I'm like from the throat up still. And so they had to write, you know, the different feelings on the board. Has that happened to anybody else? I hope at least one other person. And then they made me pick one, you know. So, Karen, how do you feel? I go, um, angry, 
Yes, you could be angry. You're darn right I'm angry. I'm really angry. I'm really angry that I'm having to be here. And it's like all of a sudden it became able. I was able to make the connection between what I was feeling and also what, what it was called. I mean, as, as elementary as it seemed, it was an education for me to really start from the gut level. And I really feel that at codependency is really such a tricky thing because, you know, with addiction... Well, it's really clear. You have an object, right? You have a substance. You have a something. You have a behavior. You have something that you can point to and say, that's it. But when it's codependency or, or when it's, you know, um, being an Al-Anon in a situation, it's all mirrors. You notice that? It's all done with mirrors. It's a reflection of everything else. And it's, you know, it, it looks like love, but it's not quite love. And it's like, it's so hard to identify and put your hands around and to realize when you've slip back out into this, I get my gratification through somebody else, you know, again, rather than I'm just loving them and trying to find where those boundaries are and where those barriers are. And it was really quite an education. Well, shortly after we began treatment, the 1st of September, by the end of September, my husband had to, he had to go into two weeks um, inpatient into a hospital to detox because of the level of degree of the drugs that he'd been using in the system he needed to clear out. While he was still in the hospital, I ran a little pregnancy test on myself in the laboratory and found out I was pregnant. So now we've been married about four months. My husband's detoxing in the hospital. He was going to kill himself a, year, uh, a month before. And I have great news for the therapist, right? We come into our group therapy, we sit down, and we go, we're so excited. We've got great news. They go, really? What? And we said, we're pregnant. And their faces just drop open, their mouths drop open. And we go, no, 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 it's really good news. We wanted to get pregnant. And they were like, uh-huh, cigarette break. They all, you know, therapists always smoke. Did you know that? You know, I don't know if you know that. But I noticed that my therapist always went out in the hall and smoked. So it was like, oh, they just had a smoking break. But anyway, I thought they would realize, I thought that they would realize that this was really good, that, that we wanted to do this intentionally. And we had clearly no idea, none, zero, what we were in for. That, that maybe as we went through therapy, our relationship might not even last. That you know, that the pregnancy, who knows what would happen during the pregnancy time. I mean, it's just a lot of variables, and we were so early in our um, treatment, and it, it, nothing was, you know, nothing's given, and you know that. As you start off on your process, you never know where you're going to end up or who you're going to end up with. But clearly, we were oblivious to that, and, and luckily for us, we have indeed celebrated 15 years of marriage, and my daughters, I have had two daughters, and have, they've grown one to high school now and the other one through into middle school. And so um, we're one of those that were able to use this process to grow through and to heal and to strengthen our relationship together. And there have been many times along that path that we had to re-up. You know, we had to recommit. We had to, um, we had to take another direction. We had to get some outside help and work out those issues that plagued us from our backgrounds. And my process continued to be, even after the immediacy of codependency therapy, was to move into um, family of origin work. And so my connection with 12-step group has always been in the adult children of alcoholics because that's where I was at home. I went to some open AA meetings with my husband when he was first trying to 
you know, get into, into this experience of going to AA. And, of course, still being a good little Al-Anon, I was going with him to help him, you know, boost him to get him to go there. But I was weirded out by open AA meetings because it was like being surrounded by my dad, you know. It's like my dad was everywhere, and it was just so weird to me. And it didn't feel, I mean, I did not feel the, the kinship that I felt when I went to ACA. And when I would try to go to some Al-Anon meetings, and there's some very wonderful Al-Anon meetings in this town and lots of recovery. But some of the ones, that early ones that I started um, in, in, when, in the mid-'80s, I just happened to hit some where what I heard was my mother. And what I would hear is a room full of, of some women who were, <clears throat> I remember distinctly this one meeting where a woman stood up and said that she had that she had not picked up her husband's underwear today and she was so proud of herself and everyone applauded. And I just was like, kick the bastard out the door, you know. I mean, kick his butt out the door and don't come back until you do. I mean, that's how I felt about it. <laughs> so I thought to myself, maybe this isn't where, I, I mean, this isn't the meeting for me, you know. So that's where I kept looking for the right places for myself. And what I discovered for me was ACA. And being with adult children of alcoholics, I am always surrounded by brothers and sisters. And that no matter where we've come from, we experience a lot of the same things together. And we certainly know a lot of the same shorthand. And we know what some of those things did to us and, and how we've gotten where we are. And so that has been um, a very important part of my path to recovery. In addition to continuing some family of origin work and therapy, the two of them just took me logarithmically through healing in many areas of my life. And um, I've continued that process, practicing the spiritual principles of recognizing that my higher power is always in charge and always working through me, and that, and that bringing me to this meeting today and to this conference today has been um, another way that my higher power has shown up in my life and a way of reminding me of how I've gotten where I am and how I've enjoyed a lot of the promises that um, 12 step, um, the 12 step promises that we're all given, those 12 promises that are starting to come alive in my life on a regular basis. And I'll tell you, it's just wonderful. I know you know that for yourselves and I know that's why you stay committed to your process and your program. And I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for us to share with one another that it's a miracle, isn't it, that when we share our pain, that's where we get our greatest comfort and connection with other people, that, that God somehow works through us in that. It's just a, a powerful testimony to the power of the human spirit and how we can, we can come through anything together. But the key is that we do it together. And so I just really appreciate your attention today and sharing part of my story. Um, I finished by saying that um, the work that I do today, um, I know, is a direct relationship to um, my recovery process in 12-step. In I'm a minister in a, in a church here in town, and I, it has... I've been a minister for over six years, and it's such a privilege to share my story as I, um, as I experienced it with other people and to be able to direct them into 12-step and into other avenues of healing that I know have made a difference in my life and able to do some things that has brought my spirituality to another place, too, in this experience. And so this is a culmination of my family heritage. It's a culmination of my of my lifetime, really, and the heritage that I hopefully, legacy that I'll pass on to my children. And 
hopefully that I will share the good things with them and not so much of the hurt and so much of the dysfunction. So I just uh, really appreciate all of you for listening to me today and letting me share my story, and I thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you all. Thank you.